0: Yes, I did. I walked to church this morning. Now, granted, I only live like a block and a half from the church. So it's not like I had a long ways to walk. But my, my ears were sensitive to the touch by the time I got to church. We all do stupid things, don't we? Um, and I hope that that's one of the most stupid things I do for, for the rest of my life. Because in reality, that's not too terribly bad. But chances are I'll do so, something even worse probably by the end of the day. I think we can all relate that we do stupid things. And, you know, sometimes those stupid things are not so dangerous. Like maybe walking to church when you know it's only a block and a half. Now, if I had to walk probably for an hour outside, um, probably wouldn't have been the smartest thing in the world not to wear a hat to cover my ears. I did not wear a hat when I walked to church because I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't want to mess up my hair. <laughs> i just, I got to be in front of you and whoever's watching online. I just did not want my hair to, to look, so I did not wear a hat. Again, stupid? Absolutely. Um, and I suffered for it. But then there are things in life that we do that are much more severe. The consequences are much more severe. And... Sometimes we do these things um, and we, we, it's not necessarily that they're sinful as much as they're just probably not the direction God wants us to go. Maybe, maybe it is sacrificing your relationship with God for a job. I, I, can, I can't count the number of times on my hand and feet, the times I've heard that I know that, that this, this, this job is right for me, even though I'm not going to be able to go to church. It's, it's an opportunity for me to get in the door. It's an opportunity for me to make more money. It's an opportunity for me to do something greater. But at what expense? And don't get me wrong. Going to church does not mean your relationship with God is going to fall apart. Missing time with other believers together does not mean your relationship is going to fall apart. Because in reality, this is not what your relationship with God is all about. But I do know that if left unchanged, it will lead you down a road that could cause you to abandon your faith altogether. This is one example of a thousand I could throw out there about decisions that we have made or are making that have severe consequences. That, that let's be honest, create problems in our lives. And while um, I don't think that... All the things that we do wrong are going to destroy us. The more we take God out of the decision-making process, the more dangerous it becomes. And sometimes we make these decisions, and when we look back on these decisions, we think, with the failure that I have had, how in the world is God ever going to use me in a meaningful way again. I've talked to people like that. I've talked to people who have who have made mistakes, big mistakes, and asked the question: God, how in the world is God ever going to use me to do anything of significance in my life because of these mistakes that I've had? Maybe your mistakes aren't necessarily life-altering in, in the scope of your entire life, but if you've ever or are asking the question, can God use me even though I've done these terrible mistakes? I want to answer that question today. And maybe, maybe you already know the answer to this question. But there's still a part of you that is saying, okay, maybe God can use me, but how? How? I want to look at that today. We're continuing our series on In the Beginning... And the, most of our messages in this series are going to, actually not most of them, all of them, are coming out of the book of Genesis. The word Genesis simply means beginning. That's what it means, beginning. And so when we look at Genesis, we look at the beginning. But Genesis is not just about creation. We think when we talk about beginning, we focus on God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And we think of the six days of creation when we think of Genesis. The book of Genesis is not about creation. It's about the beginning of what God had in plan to reconcile his people to himself. So when you think of the book of Genesis, don't think of the beginning of creation and how God created everything in six days. Think of God's beginning work in his purpose to redeem humanity. That's what Genesis is truly about. And so as we walk through in the beginning, as we walk through the book of Genesis, we're going to look at how God uses people in Genesis to redeem the world. So keep that in mind as we as we continue this series. If you have your Bibles and want to turn, we're going to start reading in Genesis chapter 22. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. Um, typically, I read out of the NIV. Um, this actually, I'm, I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, um, simply because I like the way it, it says it uh, better than I like the NIV. So, Um, everything else we read is going to be out of the NIV, but this right here is going to be out of the New Living Translation. Here's what it says. Genesis chapter 22, starting with verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. I'm going to pause real quick for you. It says, your son, your only son, two things. One is, isn't that what Jesus said, my one and only, God said about Jesus, my one and only son? Two is, is this really Abraham's only son? If you remember correctly, didn't he have a son before he had Isaac, Ishmael? By his wife's maidservant, Hagar? Why in the world would he say, your only son? Because it was his only son that legitimized God's purpose and God's plan. Ishmael was not part of God's plan. God knew that it was going to happen, but it was not part of God's plan. The other thing is, it says, Isaac, who you love so much. Did you know that this is the first time love is mentioned in the Bible? I learned that new this week, believe it or not. I have a master of divinity from a seminary, and that's the first time I heard that. Okay, let's keep going. (laughs) The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son, Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw a place in the distance. Stay here with the donkeys, Abraham told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there, and then we will come right back. Another little side note. We will worship there, and we will come right back. Listen, God called God called Abraham to go up to this mountain and sacrifice his son, kill his son, and burn him on the altar. That's what a burnt sacrifice is. Burn him on the altar, which means he would be dead. How is he going to come back if he's dead? This this shows you the faith that Abraham already had. We're going to go, and we're going to come back. Did he know exactly how God was going to do that? No, he didn't. But that's the faith of Abraham. So, let's continue. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulder, while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked on together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, okay, I want to hold up, stop again. When, If you're like me, and you grew up in Sunday school, and you read or do you guys remember those little felt characters they put up on the, you know? Yeah, we all had those, right? You saw Abraham, and, and, and in, the, in the, the picture of Abraham, he looked like he was 100 and something years old. And then you see Isaac, and he looks like he's seven, right? How much wood do you think a seven-year-old could carry? Do you think a seven-year-old could carry enough wood to build an al- altar that would burn the child's entire body. Here's a a realization for most of you. Chances are, Isaac was either a very old teenager or a young adult when these events took place. So, let's keep reading. So, Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulder while he himself carried the fire and the knife as the two of them walked Together, The idea of walking together was they were walking in agreement. Not like you would think of a policeman pulling a prisoner behind him. But they both had had an agreement. They were walking together as maybe a, a married couple would walk together. They were walking in agreement. Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have the fire and the wood... The boy said, "But where is the sheep for the burnt offering?" Remember, when I talked about how old Isaac was. the The word "boy" there. Here's, here's the, the misconception: the word that is the Hebrew word that is used for "boy" there is actually a word that not only includes "boy," but it also used several times for infant. It is also the same word that is used. Earlier in this passage, when it said his servants. So, you kind of understand, they interpret it as boy. They put boy in there, but probably it's not the best description of who, I mean, he was a boy because he was male, but, his, but we'll reread into this, oh, he was a young kid. That's not necessarily true. Here's what Abraham said. God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. When they arrived at the place where God had told him to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Do not lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it at a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use the name as a proverb on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham of heaven. This is what the Lord says, Because you have obeyed me and have not withheld your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you, and you will multiply, and I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars of the sky and the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. We can learn a lot from this story. And I was hesitant a little bit to read all of that because there's just so much to unpack. But I don't want to necessarily unpack a whole lot out of that passage. I want to, I want to highlight two things this morning. I think that will help us understand that no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no how big the mistakes are that's been in our lives, God still has a purpose and a plan for each one of us. And, and just because we've made mistakes doesn't mean that we have avoided what God wants to do in our lives. First thing we need to realize is that Abraham and us had to learn the difference between trusting in the promise and trusting in the promiser. Trusting in the promise and trusting in the promises. Trusting in the promise simply means the end justifies the means. You've heard that, right? The ends justify the means. I don't care how you do it, just as long as you get it done. Unfortunately, we live in a world that seems to, seems to promote that type of thinking. Listen, Abraham tried it his way. Abraham tried it at the, at the, at the, dis, as, because God, and God saw what he did and did not like it. For instance, Abraham goes, and he goes to Egypt because there was a famine, and he brings his wife, Sarah. And when he gets to Egypt, he's scared for his life because he thinks people are going to see his wife and kill him so that they can have his wife. So what does he tell Sarah, or Sarai, depending on how you want to pronounce it? He says, tell everybody you're my sister. I could not do that because my wife and I, we look nothing alike. Nobody would believe that she is my sister. Now, is he lying? No. You might not know this, but actually Sarah was Abraham's half-sister. They had different mothers but the same father. Um, That wouldn't really happen today. And how did it happen back then? Well, I don't want to get into too much. It just happened. It was natural for them to do that. Part of the reason that it's illegal for you to marry a close relative of yours is because of how degraded our genes be- has, have become. And so when you mate with somebody who is closely related to you, there is usually a deform- deformity or handicap of some kind. Okay? That is what spurred the law that close relatives, back then they didn't have this problem, so Put your minds at rest about that. Um, so when he goes to Egypt and he tells everybody, or they tell everybody, "This is my sister." He's not lying, but he is being deceptive because he's leaving out a very important statement: "She's also my wife." And Pharaoh learns that. If you know the story, things bad things start happening a disease runs through his family and his household and finally figures out oh this is because there's a married woman that I am about to, that I took as my property is kind of how now he hadn't slept with her yet but he eventually gave her back and everything worked out but listen abraham made a mistake a big mistake Because he put in jeopardy God's plan for his life by saying she is just his sister. You think how terrible that is? Guess what? He does it again. You think you would learn, but you don't. Chapter 20. That was in chapter 12. In chapter 20 of Genesis, not too long before uh, what we read, he does the same thing with Abimelech. But this time... God spoke to Abimelech and said, hey, don't have anything to do with her because she is Abraham's wife. And he listened. Again, he, had, he, he, tried, he, he, he tried to save himself. And in saving himself, saving the promise that God had made for him in his own terms. But that's not the end of the story either. That's not the end of the story. Sarah knew that she was getting old. Abraham was getting old. And God had promised them that that Abraham was going to have uh, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And as numerous as the sand and the seashore. And I read in a couple of places actually that those two statements kind of have the same meaning behind them. That they suggest, that they they have this idea that the number of sand pebbles on the seashore match the number of stars in the sky. How do they know? I want to know which one of them went out and counted all the sands on the seashore. Because they really don't know. But the idea is that they both have the same number. And somebody, uh, somebody said that it is 10 to the 25th power. So, for all of you, math, can anybody figure that out in their head right now? Probably not. Because um, I tried figuring it out. And so you know how math works when you have a power. That's how many times you multiply it by itself. Okay, so um, you figure that out. Just going to the fourth power, you have a one, and if my math is correct, uh, with, with 32 zeros following it. That's just to the fourth power. Or maybe that was the fifth power. I don't remember now. I didn't spend too much time figuring it out. Because after I got to the fourth or fifth power, I said, that's too many zeros. I'm not even going to. I was actually going to uh, put the zeros up here so you could see how many zeros covered the page. The idea was you would not be able to count his descendants. But there was a problem. Abraham was getting old. And Sarah was way past childbearing age. So Sarah had a good idea. Sarah had a really good idea. Hey, Abraham, I'm getting old. Chances of me having a kid, slim to none. So why don't you take my young maidservant and sleep with her, and we can establish, we could fulfill God's promise through her. And you know what Abraham said? Woman, get out of here. I am sticking with God's plan. No. Nope. He said, Sure, why not? Works for me. And we we know how that ended. Well, maybe you don't know how it ended. Eventually, Hagar and, and Ishmael got sent away. From, Abraham's, from Abraham and, and, the, and the family. And Abraham wasn't happy about it. Listen, Ishmael was Abraham's son. He was not happy about it. But God reminded him, don't wor- God told him, don't worry about it. I take care of Ishmael. Now let's get on with what I want you to do. Listen, Abraham made his share of mistakes. And all of those mistakes... All of those mistakes came from his desire, his desire to trust in the promise. God promised me this, so I'm going I'm to help God make it happen. I'm going to make sure I stay alive by telling everybody she's my, my wife is actually my sister. I'm going to help God by, by, by having a kid through somebody else. I'm going to help God along. And yet all of these mistakes that Abraham made did not neglect or did not diminish what God wanted to do in his life. And the same thing is with each one of us in this room. Or or if you're watching it from home, God, God knows the mistakes you've made. You are not strong enough to corrupt yourself so bad that God can't use you. You're not that strong. You're not that powerful. So don't think because you made this mistake that God can't use you to accomplish something that he has called you to do. Abraham tried to help God. And and he had to learn something that we all have to learn. God doesn't need our help. He wants our obedience. Why? So that so that we could go to heaven if we're obedient? No. Because our obedience shows our trust, shows our faith. God desires us to do what's right, not to do what we think will bring about the end that he wants. We need to trust in the promiser, not trust in the promise, because the promise will eventually lead us to a place where we have neither. So let's follow this through. Let's assume Abraham decides that he's going to trust in the promise. The promise was... And, and there's there's a lot to the to the to the covenant that that God made with Abraham. But I, I want to I'm going to just focus on part of that covenant. Two parts of that covenant. One was God was going to make his descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands in the sea. The other is that Abraham, through Abraham, all men would be blessed. And that that through through Abraham all I mean, is through his descendant, which we know to be Jesus, the Christ, the one who died for all of our sins. Those two things right there. What would have happened if, if Abraham decided to c- completely follow the promise and not the promiser? Well, first of all, he would have continued down the path that he was following, which was, I'm going to do it whatever I have to do to have an heir, to have a child, I'm going to do. And he probably would have tried to build his, his promise, he would have built it, tried to build it through Ishmael, which is not what God desired. And through doing that, He abandons his faith in God. He abandons his trust in the promiser. Listen, if you think you can do it on your own without God's help, chances are you're going to try. It's part of being human. We do it all the time. And if you're successful, guess what you do the next time? You do it on your own again. Eventually if you keep trying to do it on your own and you find that there are successes in that and you keep doing it on your own, eventually you're going to come to the conclusion, well, maybe I don't need God as much as I think I might need him. And then if you eliminate God from the equation because you've been successful on your own anyway, not only did you lose the promise, the promiser who is God, God can't fulfill his promise because you're doing your own thing. So when you, when you put your trust in the promise instead of the promiser, you not only lose the promiser, but you ultimately lose the promise. If Abraham had done it his own way, we would not be sitting here talking about Abraham's faith. Now, God would have found a way. He always does. As I said before, you can't screw up God's purpose and plan You're not that strong. But Abraham learned that trusting in the promise only brought heartache because you're abandoning the very one who gave you that promise. But if you trust in the promiser, he makes sure that the promise comes true. Because because he learned to trust in the promiser, because he learned to put his to, to, to trust in God. Listen, taking, taking Isaac up to that mountain, building an altar, putting his son on it, tying him up, putting his son on it, and picking up the knife, you don't think that was difficult? You don't think that was probably the hardest thing he'd faced? This is, the, this is the son whom God was going to use to fulfill all of the promises that God had made. And yet God asked him to take his life. Now, we might, you might be thinking, that seems kind of mean of God to ask Abraham to take his son's life. That's, see, that's terrible. God would never do that. Well, you're right. He wouldn't because God had a plan. And, and in reality, human sacrifices was, was not unheard of during Abraham's time. They used to sacrifice children to false gods all the time. It's, this, this was not like nobody ever does this. Why would you do that? No, this was pretty common practice amongst false gods. But Abraham Abraham said if I really want to receive, if I really want this promise in my life to come about as God had ordained then I have to be obedient. Even if it meant destroying what seems like the very thing that is going to fulfill this promise. And we know the story. We read it. We read that God had another way, but it took it took Abraham to the brink of, of killing his only son before God revealed to him the full plan where We we often, and I do this, I do this time and again, and that is, God, I want you to to show me everything so I know I'm walking the way you want me to walk. Well, if God shows you everything, you're not walking in faith. You're not walking in faith. Teenagers have it easy nowadays. You know why? Why? GPS. Okay? Listen, I remember the day where you had to hop on MapQuest to get, who remembers MapQuest? To get directions. And you just pray your printer was working so you could print them out and take them with you. Even before that, when I got my license, I'm not going to say how old I am. Well, I will, okay. I'm 27. (coughs) When I, got my, when I got my license, and I was going to a friend's house, to get to my friend's house, I had to first pick up the phone that had a cord attached to the wall, by the way. Hey, how do you get to your house? Now, I've, I've, I've mentioned this before. I don't have a very good memory. I do not, do not, do not just rely on my memory, because if you do, you'll regret it. So he tells me, and I write it down. And I take that piece of paper. And I do what you're not supposed to do today. I look at that piece of paper while I'm driving. Or well, I did. I don't do it anymore because now I have GPS. And hey, kids have it easy nowadays. But back in the day, I was trusting. I was trusting the information he gave me was right. And so I followed it. And guess what? I got to where I was going, I wanted to go. Eventually, I had driven to Haas several times, and I knew the way without even following the directions. That's where God wants us to be. God wants us to be a point, to get to a point where we know his will so well that we instant we, we just instinctively follow it. That doesn't mean that we're not going to run into difficulties. That doesn't mean that if I'm going to my friend's house, and this actually happened, I'm going to my friend's house and a tree fell across the road. And I had an old beat-up truck, and I seriously considered, the tree was only about this big around, but it had a bunch of branches on it. I seriously considered just driving over that tree. It It wouldn't have really hurt the truck. The truck was a piece of junk. But then I thought, wait a minute, this isn't my truck. This is my dad's truck. And if I do something to it, I will be walking to my friend's house. So I had to find another way around. I had to make my own way because I didn't have directions to get to his house there. I should have called my friend and got got more directions to get to his house because it took me 45 minutes. A 10-minute drive took me 45 minutes because I tried to do my own thing in my own way. we need to to realize that our own way of thinking is not going to get us to to where God wants us to be. It is is having that faith and and doing what God, even when it seems it's counterproductive. Do you think killing Isaac would be, in, in Abraham's eyes, productive, In achieving the promise that God had made him. Absolutely not. He was about to take the life of the only kid that he had with his wife, Sarah. And yet he was willing to do it. Why? Because he understood that trusting in the promiser would give him the promise. The promiser is always greater Than the promise. In fact, if you have your Bibles, and some of you guys don't want to write in your Bibles, and that's pretty, that's fine, okay? Maybe you have notes. If you have in your Bible, I want you to go to the margin of your Bible and I want you to write promise, sir, and the greater than sign, and promise. Just write it right there in the margin. Or if you have a place for notes in your Bible, write it in there so you you remember that the promise was was not the reason. For this story. Yes, the promise came out of this story. The the reason for this story is that we can see that Abraham had faith in the promiser more than he had faith in the promise. We need to stop focusing so much on the promise that we lose sight of the promiser. When you lose the promiser, you lose both the, the promiser and the promise he promised. When you lose sight of the promiser, you lose both the promiser and the promise he promised. I was going to say that really fast and confuse you. But I tried and I couldn't do it very fast. So I decided not to. The point is, when you give up on the promiser, you give up on everything. You will never achieve the promise God has for you in your life if you give up on the promiser, if you give up on God. But it's easy to do that when we look at our lives and we see the failures and we see the the, the way we've done it ourselves and we see how we've let God down. Abraham should be a shining example of how we do not need to let our past, the failures, the disappointments, the regrets, we do not, do not let your past and all the bad things that have happened in your past dictate what God does in your future. I said it before, I've said it twice already, I'm going to repeat it again because it's important to know you are not strong enough to enable God or take God's power away from fulfilling his promise in your life. So, that being said, Do we know what the promises we have that God puts in us? Now we we don't have necessarily the same promises that Abraham has. And my wife is saying amen because if, if, if God told me that I was going to have as many children or ancestors as stars in the sky, my wife would probably disforce me right now. But there are other promises we have. You know, there's, there's two types of um, promises that we all have. There are promises that God makes to everybody. And there are promises that God makes to individuals. And I want to I look a little bit at, at some of those real quick. Like the first promise, and there are a lot of promises that God makes to his people, to everybody. There are a whole slew of promises in here. And I don't have time to look at all of them. I want to look at a couple of them that I think are extremely important that will that will that will help us. The first is that we have a promise of a future home in heaven. John 14, verse 3 says this: And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. That is a promise. Heaven is a promise that God gives to us. How can that promise get in the way of the promiser? Have you ever heard the old the old saying that that he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. If you're young, you probably haven't heard that. but but if you've been in church for a while, you've probably heard that. The idea is that they're so focused on heaven and what God has for them that they're out of touch with reality here on earth. Jesus made it pretty clear our responsibility here on earth is to love people and lead people to Jesus. And if you are so heavenly minded, so much thinking about God, not that we shouldn't be excited about heaven. We should be. Because it is going to be a much better place than this. But if you are so consumed with that, that you forget where you are, Right now, and what you're called to do right now, then you're more focused on the promise than you are on the promiser. God also, Jesus also promises us that we will never be alone. Matthew chapter, 18, uh, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. This is familiar. The Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I will always be with you to the very end of the age. We will never be alone. Never. And in this promise... It was made to the disciples. This promise was made to the, to the believers, to those who follow Jesus. This promise is for all of us who follow Jesus. But don't think that those who don't have faith in Jesus are alone. Remember, God is omnipresent. So there's no place you can go whether you have faith in Jesus or you ha- don't have faith in Jesus that God is not there how in the world could could that how could that promise become so much greater than the promiser i've I've shared this before, but I was 34, 35, 33. I have to look at my wife because I don't remember. I was 33 when I got married. 34. Yeah, I thought it was, okay. (laughs) I was 34 when I got married. That means I was out of college for 12 years as an adult I think I didn't feel alone at times. think I didn't feel, well, God, what's wrong with me? In fact, when we were, after we had got married and she was working for Scott Foster, one of her friends came up, asked her this question. So what's wrong with Steve? <laughs> Why did he wait so long to get, there's got to be something wrong with him. I don't know. Maybe you guys could educate me. What's wrong with me? I don't know. I just had to wait for my wife to grow up. (laughs) Truth be known. If you can't laugh at yourself, other people will. (laughs) Um, Sometimes, sometimes in our effort to have that promise that we would never be alone, we look for somebody to fill that promise apart from Jesus. And that can be a dangerous thing. Because I have learned that just because you're married doesn't mean you will not feel alone not that my wife makes me feel that way don't 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 mess in his hand what i'm saying here i never feel unwanted from my wife but there is something in us that no other human being can satisfy so when we We read this promise that God says, I will always be with you. You will never be alone. When we start trying to find somebody apart from Jesus to fill that, we are putting our trust in the promise and not in the promiser. Jesus also promises us, or God's word also promises us, that we will have complete joy. John 15. Verse eleven says, "I have told you this so that you that my joy. Jesus is saying that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. God is Jesus is saying, and and what he was talking about was love. So let's let's understand that's what he was talking about, and he talked about them about love, and he says he's telling you this so that his joy will be in you." And your joy will be complete. The, the word complete there has more than, uh, uh, sometimes we think of complete as finished. Well, that's not necessarily an incorrect understanding, but it also includes full. It also means that, there, that, there, that you can't put any more in there. You ever go to the gas station? You put gas in your car. You put the little nozzle in there and you hold the handle and you flip the little handle up so you don't have to get a cramp in your hand. And it goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And, goes. and all of a sudden you hear this, what? Click. And you know that the gas is full. The gas tank is full. So you go over there and you say, no, it's not. <laughs> right? Come on, you do it. You all do it. Know Now I've read somewhere... You should not do that because you can, and I don't know how this works, but you can overfill your gas tank. But the idea here is that we want to put as much gas in our tank as we can. Because let's be honest, we're all lazy and we hate stopping at the gas station. You don't want any part of your gas tank not to be filled. That is the idea here is that the the, the joy that, that we are promised is the joy that does not have any emptiness inside of it. It's like when you fill up your coffee cup. If you like coffee, and you like coffee as much as I do, I get it as full as I can. Actually, I don't, because I put creamer in there. I got to have room for creamer in there. But I I mean... And I'm carrying that coffee cup, and I'm carrying it like this because it's so full, I don't want to spill it. The joy that, that God wants for us is complete, is full. There's no room for anything that is not joy. And yet we try and fulfill this promise. We try and, and, and trust in this promise when we don't have the joy. And how do we do it? by things, by people, relationships. Oh, you know, if I just had that, man, I'd be happy. Granted, you probably will be, but if you're like me, after about three or four months, that happiness seems to fade a little bit and eventually goes away altogether. And then instead of being happy you have it and curse it. you start cursing it and say, I wish this stupid thing would work correctly. That's what happens when, when you start focusing on the promise instead of the promiser. When we focus on the promiser, he makes our joy complete. When we focus on the promise, it only brings temporary happiness. The last promise I want to look at is God, God's promise to supply our needs. Philippians 4.9 says this. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Now, Philippians, he's, what he's talking about here is it previously, before this verse, he's talking about how people... Have been faithful in supporting him. And then he says, because they were faithful in supporting him, and even their support, even uh, even was difficult for them to share this money, he was saying, even though you suffered in giving me what you gave me, he says, My God will meet all of your needs according to riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Matthew, Matthew 6, verse 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. We know that verse. We see it plastered all over the place. These things, what are all these things he's talking about? Well, again, if you read prior to this verse, he's talking about what they will eat, what they will drink, and what they will wear. What he's talking about is your needs will be taken care of. Notice he didn't didn't say, oh, by the way, um, you'll have a brand new car every five years. Oh, by the way, you'll have a 3,000 square foot home. Oh, by the way, you'll have the latest trendy gadget. Listen, I love my trendy gadgets as much as everybody. But these are not the things that God promises us. The things that God promises us that he's going to take care of our needs. The things that we require to live on. As a pastor, um, as a youth pastor, I never had to worry about dealing with people who called or came into the church and says, we're in need. Can you help us out with some money? I didn't have to do. I didn't have to worry about that as a youth pastor, and I'm thankful for that. As a senior pastor, that happens. And now, fortunately, um, we're part of the Shenandoah Ministerial Association, and we, as a group of churches, we give to a fund. It's called a crisis fund, and that fund is managed by one pastor. So everybody who needs help from one of the churches can go. To that pastor so that you don't have somebody going to every church asking for money abusing the system well it is a crisis fund nothing more so and, and the the pastor who oversees this is very blunt with people who come in and I'm thankful because if you know me I I sometimes am not as blunt as I need to be My wife says, I'm patient patient to a fault. And so I'm thankful he does this. But one of the things that he does when people come in is he helps them evaluate whether or not what they have is a crisis. Most of the time, it is not a crisis issue. It's a money management issue. Where they have plenty of income, The problem is, is they're not spending it the way they should be spending it. When God says, I will meet your needs, he's not saying, I will meet your wants. Now, I, I I want you to understand something very carefully. I have seen a lot of people who go to church who faithfully, faithfully give to God. And none of those people that I'm aware of, none of those people ever have said, "I'm in a crisis and I can't pay all of my bills." Why? Because they those people are the same people who understand that God meets their needs, not their wants. And because when you are faithful to give what God expects you to give, what he's commanded you to give, what happens is he gives you what you need and then he blesses you with what you want also. As long as it's not going to be dangerous to you. The reason God does not give all of us $5 million is because it's dangerous That all of us give $5 million because we're stupid people. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and he will take care of you. That's the idea. But you know, I think the biggest example of, of God supplying our need is in our passage that we read this morning. Verses 12 through 14, I want to reread those. Remember, this is, Abraham has got the knife, and he's about to thrust it into Isaac. God says this, do not lay a hand on the boy, the angel said, do not hurt him in any way, for I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in, by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Abraham was able to obey God even to the point of almost thrusting that knife into his son's body because he realized that God is his provider. I'm going to have the worship team come up. I, t- I typically don't ask or tell Erica what songs to sing. I don't because... Um, in reality, if, if, if there's a, a song that will go with, with, good with my message, I expect God to tell Erica. <laughs> Not just me. But I really wanted to sing this song. And it's an older song. We, we sing it as an intro. But there is, there is so much power in this song when we understand truly what it means. I, talk, I, I read this. Yahweh Yirah. You know what that means jehovah jireh the lord is our provider the lord is the one who provides so i want to i want to sing this song and then i'll come back and then we'll close service Come on. Where you've been or what you've done. The challenges you faced, the difficulties. You could have been the worst person in the world. But just like Abraham, you are not strong enough to overpower God's purpose for you. So as I close in prayer, I want you to to talk with God about two things. One is maybe you need to say, God, I'm sorry for the things that I've done and how I've abandoned you and the promise you have for me. Forgive me, help me, and, and show me what I need to do to get back on the path of trusting the promiser and not the promise. Second is I want you to ask God to show me, to show you how you can accomplish the promises that he has put in your life. Now, understand this. That sometimes when you ask these things, when we close in prayer and I ask you to ask God these things, chances are, most of the time, he's not going to answer you right now which means you have to go back to God and ask these things again. Sometimes he will. Sometimes you just have to ask him again and ask him again. But one thing I've always known and experienced is that when we humbly seek an answer, God always provides. So as I close in prayer, talk with God about these things. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you So no matter what we've done in our past, no matter how big the mistakes have seemed to, to been, no matter the problems that we've created, you still desire to use us. You still have a promise. You still have a plan for our lives. Help us to see that. Help us to get past the mistakes and the failures And rely on you. Put our trust in the promiser. Give us the strength that only you can provide. Give us the wisdom to walk in the steps that only you can provide. Show us how to live by faith. To walk by faith. And to live in the promise that you have for us. We thank you for that. We love you. We ask all this in your name. Amen. The worship team is going to sing this song one more time. You are dismissed. Be blessed, and we'll see you next week.